It's great to be with you this morning. Thank you for inviting me. And it's great to have you here just to share God's word together and worship. And uh, Kev, thank you for leading and for being very real with us this morning. We're going to continue our journey in the book of Acts. And uh, we're looking this morning at Acts chapter 19, reading from verse 23 to the end of the chapter. If you want to follow the verses and you have a Bible, that's great. If you would prefer just to listen, then the Lord will bless you. So this is what Luke writes in the continuing journey um, of Paul at this stage in the city of um, Ephesus. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the, for the craftsmen. He called them together along with the workmen and related trades and said, Men, you know we receive a good income from this business. And you see and, how he, uh, and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in, 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 and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says man-made gods are not gods at all. There is danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's travelling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theatre. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theatre. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews pushed Alexander to the front, and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defence before the people. But when they realised he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the city clerk quietened the crowd and said, Men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls they can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion, since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. That's quite a story. When Paul brought this wonderful message um, of God's grace through Jesus Christ to Ephesus, it opened two doors. It opened the door of opportunity where people listened 
They were convicted, they responded, and they came to faith. The second door that was opened was the door of opposition. People in that case reacted aggressively, and in these verses, they actually went to the stage of creating a riot amongst the people. This was always the twofold response wherever Paul went. Whenever he opened his mouth, whenever he preached, this twofold response would be seen. And it's always going to be the case. It's no different today to it was in Paul's day. Where the previous chapter, as you looked at that, and the previous verses rather, they looked at the power of the gospel, what these verses show us this morning is the light of the gospel. It's an exposing light. It's bringing to light things that were under the surface, the reality of where people were in their lives and what they were all about. And when God shines this glorious light, people will do one of two things. They will either run to it, its warmth, and embrace it as a message they've never heard before, but it was the best message that they've ever heard. And Kevin made it very clear about sharing this fantastic news with people around us. It's important. But the other thing is this. There will always be those who will run away from the light because they don't want their lives to be exposed. I wonder if you've ever had the wonderful experience of someone shining a light directly in front of your face. If you've ever had that, and maybe you need to go back to your childhood for this experience and this memory, you might recall how unnerving, how uncomfortable it was. And I can remember my brother, who's a little bit older than me, but not that far really, so we pretty much grew up together, and he had a torch for his birthday. It was the best gift he could ever want. And he thought it would be really good to wake his younger brother, Les, early in the morning with this bright, shining torch, brand new batteries, right in my face. So I was lying down in the bed, and there was this torch staring at me in the face, and he put it on, laughing. Well, what was my response? Was I going to embrace the warmth glow of this lovely light in my eyes? Or was I going to act aggressively and cause a riot? Well, the aggressive bit worked because I thumped him. That was my reaction. I punched my brother. It was a good shot. It was really good. But I got into trouble. Even though he started it, I was the one who got into trouble. But what was your reaction? What would it have been? Normally, oh, don't do that. And you shy away, you back away. It's painful, it's exposing. We don't like it. You know, the gospel shone so brightly in Ephesus. It brought people to Christ, but it also did something else. It exposed the economic and religious systems that were in place in that city. So Paul preaches... And God moves, he brings back the curtain and exposes what's behind. This happened in these verses on a dramatic scale as we've read together. It affected thousands of people. It would be a painful experience for some, but it would also lead many people, as the verses go on to tell us later, to coming to faith in Christ, this glorious light of the gospel. I want to give to you just three points about this light this morning from our verses. The first thing is this. This light of this glorious gospel message exposes in these verses the intermingling of religion, false religion, and money. And we have that from verses 23 through to verse 27. 
We shouldn't be surprised to see a riot erupting in Ephesus. It wasn't a surprise. Paul has been going around preaching this wonderful message of salvation. People are starting to change. They're starting to follow Jesus. They are responding to this wonderful news. Their lives are changing. They are becoming his disciples. We read earlier, and you probably considered this last week, that at one time they even burned their treasury of, of scrolls. That would have made headline news. That's as far as they were going. This was the dramatic changes that were occurring in their lives. But if that was a fire, there were many more to burn. This would be the second one. Not just the scrolls now, but now their economy. Now their religious system is going to be affected as more and more people follow Christ and fewer people are participating in the economic systems of the city of Ephesus. Now, just a little bit of background to paint for you. Much of this city's power is based on two things working together, religion and money. That's some combination. Now, above the city, on a rocky outcrop, stood this huge temple, the Temple of Artemis, otherwise known as the Temple of Diana. It was classed as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. We're told that it was at least twice the size of the Parthenon in Athens. It boasted 127 columns. Why the odd number? I don't know. But that's the truth of it. Maybe the architect counted wrong. We don't know. But it was a colossal structure. Four feet in diameter, these columns, 60 feet high. And at the top of each column, there was this decorative frieze depicting scenes of Ephesus and its history and its industry. It was, it was a marvelous structure. Inside was a statue of Artemis. And now what's really interesting, when we read the verses together, did you pick up on that one verse where the clerk was, was telling the people and Artemis and this image that fell from the heavens? What was that all about? Well, it is actually quite interesting. If you look at one Bible version, it talks about this stone image that fell from heaven. Another version would say this was a, an image that came from Jupiter. And then if you look at the historians of the day, they write about this stone image that had landed near to Ephesus. What's that all about? Well, could it possibly have been a meteorite? Now, I say that with the history behind. And if you look closely into the history of Ephesus, not too far from the city, there's a huge crater makes it a little bit more interesting. Another thought is that it wasn't just a lump of rock. It was actually a diadem. It was a beautiful stone that was incorporated in the statue of Artemis. We don't know. But in this huge temple was the statue of Artemis. People would come there to pray to goddess Artemis. They would make to her their offerings for fertility, for childbearing, for even a good crop. The temple was also used as a place to eat and as well as that and this is where you see the intermingling of religion and money it was also used as a bank silversmiths like the one in our story demetrius would create silver replicas of artemis little shrines for pilgrims and worshippers to take home 
I was reading one book about officers not too long ago, and they, they called these high-class souvenirs. And pretty much that was the level we were on in these verses. And it reminded me of a friend many years ago who went to China on holiday. And he made the journey to the Great Wall of China, something I would love to do. And he was saying that along the wall at its base, dotted about, there were little stalls where you could buy food and you could dr buy drink, but you could also buy mementos of your visit. This is where you could buy the classic fridge magnet with this delightful picture of Chairman Mao. So you could visit China, you could admire its power, and then take home a little reminder of your visit. And it reminded me again, not too long ago, only about a year ago, my daughter and her husband went to Rome for a long weekend. And they thought, Dad, what can we bring Dad home? And I'll, t I'll show you what they brought me home, a pen. Now, that's a lovely souvenir, but who's on the pen? It's the Pope! I don't think many people have got a picture of a Pope on a pen. If you like that, I'm up for offers. Back to the story of China. If over time sales of Chairman Mao dropped, storeholders were able to go to local governments and they would have to address the problem. That's what Demetrius does in these verses. He makes this impassioned speech to his fellow tradesmen and to the people, the crowd, who were growing and growing in numbers. Demetrius, in that speech, tells us that he was well aware of Paul's mission. It wasn't a local mission. This was a big mission taking place all over Asia. People are hearing about Jesus Christ. They are following him. They are changing their ideas and their ways. They are not worshipping Artemis as they once did and other gods and goddesses. And they were turning to follow the living gods. He knew all about them. There's this national movement. And Demetrius is afraid. He's afraid that the worship of Artemis would drop. He's afraid that the local economy would suffer. But here's the bottom line. He was afraid more about his profit margin. He was afraid of losing money. He was going to lose his wealth. That's the bottom line of this story this morning. Can I just stop for a moment and think about that? Money is an evocative subject. It really is. There's a story I read about a man called Rabbi. He converted from being a Hindu guru to following Christ. Wonderful story. Wonderful conversion. One of the things that God used to convict this man was how poor people would come to him, make their offerings, and get nothing in return. He grew in wealth. He grew in status. He grew in influence. His bank balance just increased and increased. He was a wealthy man, and it began to rule his life. But the poor people just seemed to get poorer. Gurus like him did nothing without being paid, and it convicted him, and he found Christ. It's a wonderful story cut short. It's very easy in our faith to look outside and judge others about the way they live, and about their money, their wealth, and their economy. And as I was thinking about this, it reminds me of another story. A radio station, of course, in America, offered $30,000 
to the person who could eat the most unusual object. This is the, the extent people will go to get money, I believe. And the winner was a man who ate an entire tree. The tree, yes, was a sapling. It took three days, but he ate the leaves, he ate the twigs, he ate the bark, he ate the roots. At the end of the three days, he'd won the prize money. It made his life. And he was asked how he felt. He said, well, my tummy grumbles a little bit. I think he was barking mad, but <clears throat> money, <clears throat> it talks. And I don't know if you ever received the magazine that we read for today. It's, it's, a, it's a great daily reading. And um, one article was about um, this writer. And he challenged the lives of some pastors in these big mega churches in America. And he challenged one person, one pastor, about his choice of 965 trainers that he would buy and wear. He also made us wonder if a $250 Gucci belt made a better worship leader. True stories. And then he asked another pastor if it was right and wise to buy a pair of shoes that cost him $5,611. The pastor replied, it's important for me to look good for my people. It's quite shocking, isn't it? Very easy to judge, but it, it does come home. I confess that I don't wear anything like that this morning. I haven't got posh trainers, but I will say this, and I beg your forgiveness. I have a new shirt. There are two reasons for that. Firstly, I've put on weight again. And secondly, my wife would only allow me to buy this shirt when Denim's reached their 70% off, and I could afford it. That's the limit of my spending. I don't spend money like that. My wife would say, Les, you're just too careful. I don't know. I might challenge the prices in Primark, but I wouldn't say I was that careful. But you know, Jesus, he didn't tell us to pick up our cross and follow him and don't forget to buy on your way out. In fact, I remember Jesus saying the opposite. I remember him saying, give. Give out of your wealth. Give out of what you've got. Give to those in need. I love that. The problem isn't money. It's when we take things like money and status and influence, as in the case of Demetrius, as in the case of Rabi, and we make them into the ultimate things. The Bible uses a very strong word for that, and it's idolatry. And I think that's what happens in Ephesus. That's what led to the riot. The second point is this, the light of the gospel, it exposed people's heart's love of wealth. Verses 28 to 34. Look at what happens after that impassioned speech that we read together. The crowd we find rushes Paul's friends. But since he isn't there, they drag into this amphitheater, this, this theater built into the hill, the side of a hill that could take 20,000 people. They dragged these Christians, Gaius and Aristarchus, friends from Macedonia, into the theater. They were going to become the targets. Paul, we read, tried to get in. He wanted to speak in their defense. He wanted to take the opportunity, but he was stopped. He was stopped deliberately. They feared for his life. 
His life might have been taken. I see very much the hand of God in this, protecting Paul, because his time had not come. It would, another day, but God still had a purpose for him. He was being protected. And things just got out of hand. The crying out was so loud and uncontrolled that we read, and, and I smiled when I read that verse. In the end, people didn't even know why they were there. Crowd draws a crowd. They were shouting, great is uh, Artemis of the Ephesians. And then they tried to put forward this Jew, this man who they hoped would speak in defense, but the crowd wasn't having any of that because he was a Jew. And the Jews, of course, only believe in one God. He's part of the problem. No, we won't listen to you. And we read that they scream and shout for two hours. This sounds like a, a football match. I don't know if you watched anything last night. The football is, is fantastic. Another story. I haven't got time for time. But they were shouting for two hours. What's going on here? Think about where it all began. One man, one man called Demetrius, losing his trade, losing money, losing his wealth. The light of the gospel of Jesus Christ exposes the heart's love of wealth. You can see the extremities to which people were going because their money was being affected. Now, I find this challenging. I really do. If God pulled back the cover and exposed my heart, what would he see? A love of status, a love of being influential, a love of wealth, a love of wanting money, a love of wanting more and more and never being satisfied. You know, earning money is not bad. We need to do it. The danger is when our hearts begin to love those things and they consume us how quickly we can run into this idle territory. You know, I think Jesus knows us so well. And I think this is why Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, no one can serve two masters. For either he will love the one and despise the other, or he will be devoted to one and not the other. You cannot serve God's and money. This was the problem in Ephesus. Can I be very practical? What can really help us if this is a problem is the spiritual discipline of giving. I think it's a great thing. Giving is part of our worship, is part of our church life. But when we give, it does something else. It does something quite miraculous. It can actually help to take away that vice-like grip of money in our hearts. The more we give, the more blessing God can bring through it. And the less we have to worry about keeping it and storing it and watching our bank balances grow. And let's also remember this. Whatever we need, when we're given, God knows about it. God meets what that needs. He supplies all our needs. You know, my, my time is really running out, but I need to tell you this. I was out street pastoring just two weeks ago, and we met a rough sleeper who didn't ask for money. He said, I am so hungry. Have you got food? I had nothing. I didn't even have money to go and buy him a burger. I felt so guilty. And so we prayed and prayed. We had our prayer team at the base praying for us. I said, Lord, you know what we need. Will you meet us right now? And we prayed. We promised this guy we would come back to him knowing that God was going to do something 
it was a great feeling. We walked around a roundabout in Plymouth City Centre and we found a Debenhams bag. Stood out to me. Well, hang on. Debenhams shut three, four weeks ago. Why is there a Debenhams bag stood up in the middle of the pavement? Inside was a patty, a pie, a donut, a packet of crisps, and I think it was a, a Kit Kat. Untouched, fresh. I cried, Kevin, we cry when we see God doing something, don't we? I cried because I saw God meeting a need. We ran back to this man with this food parcel and we prayed with him. And we said, we haven't done this. This is what God has done because God sees. He knows what we need. He supplies everything we need. Let me get to the end of the story. The third point is this, very quickly. The light of the gospel will give us an entirely new economy because God makes all things new. This is verse 35 through to the end of the chapter. What we find in the narrative is that this town clerk suddenly appears. He quietens the crowds and he makes just four points. Firstly, Artemis is a great goddess. We don't need to worry about her. Verse 35. Then he said, these Christians haven't been sacrilegious, and they haven't blasphemed Artemis. Verse 37. And then he said, Demetrius, you can go to the courts and get this settled. Verse 38. And he finally said this, if we cause this riot, if we keep this up, we're going to be in trouble with Rome. They're going to come down heavy on us. The story ends for us this morning. The crowd quietens down and they go on their way but when we take a step back and we look at Paul's message and the message of the light of the gospel shining and impacting upon Ephesus the results are staggering it led eventually to the destruction of parts of this great temple it was repaired time and again but in the end it was left to ruin it was never repaired the worship of Artemis changed it was diminishing and we see these wonderful changes. When Paul preaches the gospel, not only does it bring people to faith in Christ, it begins to redeem a sinful, idolatrous city and economic system that was in place there. You see, Jesus is the miracle maker. He makes everything new. The old has gone. The new has come. A new start. Oh, how we need that. He is wonderful. And you know, we aren't in Ephesus this morning, but we do live in a specific place and time. And we are called as Christians to live differently, live lives of faith. Let's trust God just a little bit more. Let's pray just a little bit more and watch and see what God will do. And remember this, our lives as Christians are on display we are exposed because of the light of the gospel. People will scrutinize us. They watch what we do. They watch how we live. They watch where we go. We can bring that wonderful influence of Christ through the way we live into the lives of people who need to know about him. So, my friends, let's live lives of virtue, lives of integrity, lives of transparency and faith, and become that transforming influence in people's lives. And when it comes to a new economy, Jesus, the Son of God, became so poor that he might give us the riches 
of heaven. God bless you.